You'll notice that today is part four of a four-part series, so we're wrapping it all up today. This series was different in the sense that we did character studies. Normally, we do expository teaching, teaching through the Word, verse by verse. In these character studies, we jump around and track with a certain person. What this has allowed me to do is be a bit more practical and give you a lot of lists, all right? I go, well, this is five points about this and four points about this. I almost never do that. However, in this environment, hey, I give you options. That's different. That's totally different, Mike. I'll give you options. All right. But I'm not giving you lists in the same way. Now, uh, I'm going to give you a bunch of lists again this morning uh, for you to be able to take notes on. So if that's something that you do, you might want to get your paper and pen ready. We are in part four and I entitled this morning's message partners for life. And we're going to talk about a married couple in scripture by the name of Priscilla and Aquila. So let's begin with a concept. Um, I always try to look at things in a very practical manner. I'm not interested in trying to appear more fancy or more formal. I'm more interested in facts and truth. So I want to analyze this idea of trying to work in ministry with your spouse. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands because that will just start a fight. But I think that most of you realize working with your spouse is difficult, right? There, you clash. You're going out there and you're trying to do any task, whether it's painting at home or whether it's trying to do some honeydews around the house or whether you go out and you're trying to put together a birthday party for a friend and you actually try to do it together. You're constantly arguing and fighting about how it should be done. How do I know this? Because it happens in my marriage, right? I get it. I know. So what I wanted to do is give some ideas on why I think it is so hard to do ministry as a couple. I don't know how many of you do ministry as a couple, but percentage-wise, it's extremely small. I think it's hard for a couple reasons. Number one, our marriages aren't healthy to begin with. It's really hard to go in and start doing the Lord's work when, quite frankly, everything is chaotic. For most of you, you couldn't even dream of doing ministry with your spouse. Either your spouse isn't here with you at church, whether or not you are currently in a fight, whether or not you know that there's only a few seasons, it goes in and out of season as we're doing great, oh no, everything's falling apart, and there's so much drama in your marriage that there's no way you could do this. Or you fought so long that finally everyone has just shut up and went to their corners, and you don't even talk anymore. So you can't even imagine. Number two reason is we don't communicate. Let's say we are together. There's so much demanded in ministry to be able to go on the fly. You got to know this. You got to know this. I got to throw out my needs. You have to throw out your needs and we have to volley back and forth to get it done. In our staff, we have a huge problem with communication because it's so heavily demanded of you. Now, we all are actually pretty good communicators. We talk a lot. Our staff are friends. So we actually have everything going for us and we still have problems with communication. If our marriages aren't communicating, how in the world are we going to do a project together? Number three, I believe that we don't like each other. The whole idea of you adding something onto your plate where you go and hang out with your spouse and go try to do a project on purpose sounds miserable to most of you. You're constantly going, man, as you drive up to the house, 
that would be so cool if they weren't home right now. If I could walk into the house by myself and watch whatever TV I wanted and not get hassled, right? Okay, I understand. I get it. There's a whole bunch of our marriages where you're just going, no, I don't want to hang out with them more. Are you kidding me? No, right now I don't even like them. Okay, I know the reality, unfortunately, of where many of us are at. Finally, I don't think we respect each other. That leads to an inability to learn from one another. One will say to the other person, they'll go, hey, real quick, I know that you're uh, painting and you're using the roller, but I actually bought a smooth roller that will work better on that wall for you. And they're like, I'm fine with the roller I have. Why do you got to change rollers on me? I already loaded it up with paint. And now, you know what? You always do that. It's like all of a sudden I'm doing one thing and then you got to throw something else in the loop. Why don't you just tell me the resources we have? Do you understand? We don't respect each other. We don't think that they're going to bring something to the table that is valuable that we might actually need. And it's a shame. Because if you were doing the project by yourself and you looked over and saw that you had a different roller, you'd go pick it up. But not if they handed it to you. Right? Early in this church, it was very small. Uh, We walked in, the church was about 40. And we did everything. Everybody had a job. And we all had multiple jobs. My associate pastor was my secretary. She did everything at the time. I mean, it was her and I, we'd brainstorm and try to build the church together. And at that time, we didn't have ministry leaders. So my wife was heavily involved. Susie would run the children's ministry. Then Susie paired up and started helping to run the drama ministry. And then she was involved. Well, when she was involved with me, we had good seasons and bad seasons. There were times when literally she had to pull out of ministry because we were clashing so much. It wasn't working. She's highly opinionated. I'm highly opinionated. And we just kept smashing heads on that stuff. And every time she was wrong. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, amen. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. (laughs) When we started having kids... She, her ministry altered and she drove into the idea of becoming a wonderful mom. Now that the kids are starting to get older and they're going back to school, she's beginning to reemerge and have time to be able to reengage with ministry. And we're watching that whole dynamic start over again. What's it going to look like to minister together? I know how hard it is. So what I'm about to tell you, I am not preaching as if, oh, we've got it down. Everything's cool there. No. I know the struggles, I know the difficulties, but what I want us all to do together as a team is to begin to dream again. I want us to begin to dream of what it would be like if we could minister together, because it is not only possible, but if we put the right things in place, it is probable. So let's begin to dream. I want to give you four things that I believe are a joy in doing ministry together. Four things that will dramatically bless your marriage if you serve together. Number one, it's a bonding agent. It's a bonding agent. It's a common thing to do together. And when you actually step out and start doing something together, it gives you something new to talk about. 
You're having coffee together and you're talking about ministry and you're going, well, what about this trip? And we did this together. And what do you think about that? You're brainstorming and solving problems together. It brings you together. A lot of uh, counselors say, if you want to bless your marriage, start doing different things together. Not the same old patterns because it re-stimulates whole new ideas. Number two, I believe that a joy in serving marriage is that it's pleasing to the Lord. Can you imagine believing that your marriage is not only pleasing to the Lord because he brought you together, but that you're utilizing it for the building of the kingdom of God? Number three, it's fulfilling and purposeful. If we don't have something going on as a married couple, we will turn and nitpick. That's the bottom line. You got nothing happening. You're not driving towards one direction. There's open space. You have your own world so that when you come together, you're not sure what you're doing together. You'll turn around and look and go, you don't do this. You don't do that. We have to fill that space with something else and fill that space with, hey, the enemy's out there, not in here. And you begin to talk and dialogue about solving those issues, not about tearing each other apart. Finally, number four. Doing ministry together is an adventure, and adventures are exciting. We serve a God who is not afraid of anyone or anything. Therefore, he's going to take you into some serious, scary waters. As you navigate and walk through those together, there's something about being in warfare together that pulls you tight and begins to say, do you have my back? I have your back. We have to watch out for one another. The fill in the blank in front of you is the final bottom line that I'm trying to get across to all of us today. It is marriage is designed to build the kingdom of God. Marriage is designed to build the kingdom of God. Last list, five things. You ready? Here we go. Then we're going to dive into the word. No more list. Five things on how marriage can build the kingdom of God. Here we go. Number one change to the individual. If you've been in this church for any length of time, been in counseling with me for any marital reasons whatsoever, you will hear me say a common mantra. My mantra is this marriage is designed for change, not for bliss. It was never designed to be bliss and ultimately fulfilling. That is not the purpose of marriage. The purpose of marriage from what I see in scripture is the altering of the individual. It changes you. The problem is, how much do we like change? Not so much. So we resist each other. We hate each other's guts. How dare you push me out of my comfort zone? How dare you demand that I'm unselfish? Marriage by nature alters you. And if God's going to make an adjustment to you, he will use your spouse as a primary chisel to do it. Number two. Marriages can build the kingdom of God by being partnership and support in ministry. Simply put. Two people pulling a wagon the same direction goes faster. Number three, resources. When two people effectively pool their resources as opposed to drawing from the same pool and running opposite directions, we have a maximum efficiency. Number four, it is a display of unity. In a world where division is normal, a healthy Christian marriage can be one of the most powerful evangelistic tools that we have. Because everyone's going to assume that your marriage is as much garbage as theirs. 
if they see you submitting to one another out of reference for Christ, serving and loving one another, doing ministry together, even though they know you have dominant personalities, they know God's around. Amen? Number five, an expanded view of God. An expanded view of God. Um, I do premarital counseling and have for years and about, I don't know, ten years ago. There was a couple that was going to get married and I was going to do their premarital counseling. They were very close friends of ours. One of them happened to be on staff at the time. And so I said, hey, would you guys like to come do the premarital counseling class over at my home? Susie will be there. She knew them real well. And that one particular couple had the blessing and benefit of receiving premarital counseling from Susie and I. Now, that's dramatically different because I have all the materials. I have all the research. I have all the books that we need to study as a couple. But it's dramatically different when you start using analogies and examples. I'm still going to be giving a male perspective. Where is the blessing of the female perspective? Where is it where the woman can come in and say, maybe you should look at it like this? That blessing is so tremendous, you'll get more of a picture of God if there's a woman and a man both involved in the ministry. Now, it's interesting because, let's be honest, I'm not really a full guy anyway. All right? I'm kind of a guy girl. I lost my man card about 15 years ago. And the whole idea that I'm half woman anyway, I thought would compensate, and it just doesn't cut it. I still use guy analogies. I still talk from a male point of view. And so the bottom line is, when my wife is involved, there's greater blessing and more of God represented. Ready to get into the Bible? Let's do it. All right, turn with me to Acts chapter 18, verse 1, page 786. Acts chapter 18, verse 1, page 786. And the Bible's handed to you. We're going to be in a couple different passages. I'm just going to read the first three verses and then we'll pray for the word and get started. It says this, After this, Paul, speaking of Paul the Apostle, left Athens, Greece and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius, the emperor, had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker, as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Oh, well, that seems nice. Let's pray and see what God will have for us. Lord, would you guide us into deeper waters today? Would you help us begin to dream what it would be like to be in a marriage where we could serve together give us new eyes to see in jesus name amen in case what i'm about to share with you and what i have shared with you seems impossible we merely need to look at who received you at the doors today specifically this morning we have a number of couples all doing ministry in concert together they were the ones that handed you the bulletins. They were the ones that were at the connection center. They were the ones that were wandering around the lobby. We have a number of husband and wife teams that are doing it together. 
As a matter of fact, if you've ever been to any of our newcomers' dinners, you will learn that there was a very key element in Russ and Cindy together deciding to do this church plant. And it was when she said yes and owned into it, they were able to fly. So you must know that this church that you are now sitting in is built upon a foundation of couples and ministry together. Point is this. This church was founded and planted from a church called Arcade Baptist at the time. And the whole church was planted from a new marriage group. It was only couples. Husbands and wives that said we will go do the hard thing and plant a brand new church. You are here as a testimony to this very concept. It was Jay and Crystal who still run our drama department. It was Joel and Cheryl Acey who is our facilities manager here at the church. It was Russ and Cindy who they handle the finance and obviously you know Russ as our pastor here of the executive side. I could go on and on and on and name all the couples that started this church, but this is real. Let's go back into the Word of God. After this, it says, after what? Well, when Paul, on his second of three missionary journeys, was cruising through, he had a layover in Athens, Greece. Well, Paul can't be anywhere without doing any ministry, so he started ministering to the regular folks and ministering to the elite, the philosophers, and he just delivered this powerful message at a place called Mars Hill. After this, Paul left Athens, Greece, and went to Corinth. Now, Corinth is also in Greece. It's 50 miles away. It's in the southern part of Greece, and it's intriguing because it's always been kind of a big deal because of where it's situated for trade. In 146 B.C., the Romans destroyed it. hundred years later, Julius Caesar rebuilt it. Because you can't be without it. This is a place now where they have a a huge canal that you can go through Greece as opposed to going around. Interesting side note that has nothing to do with our message. The Corinthian Canal was cut out in the 1800s. I had an opportunity to go over and see it. It's pretty cool. So you literally go through a little part of the continent. What's intriguing is that an oil tanker goes through there. It costs 50,000 bucks for a ticket to go through. And you're like, wow, that's really expensive. If they sail around, it's 150 grand. So one little narrow passageway to get through is worth a hundred grand to them to pay that ticket. Before that canal was built, the port of Corinth, they had to take the boats out of the water and drag them over land 13 and a half miles. Literally, that's in a place called Centria. When I was there and we had a chance to study there, I scooped up a little bit of sand and put it in a thing and had it in my pocket. I have it in my office from that very location because it so astounded me that they had a groove in the ground where they would take the ships and haul them 13 and a half miles drug over land. Now we have a canal. All right, let's go back to our message. Here we go. Wow, we're not getting anywhere. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth and there he met a Jew named Aquila. Now, Aquila's not cool to name your boy today. Please don't do that. Back then, Aquila was cool because Aquila was actually a guy's name. Now, um, 
Aquila had a wife named Priscilla. Both those are Latin names, but they're both Jews. So something had transpired in their family, how long they had been in Italy, how long they had been in Rome, to begin to alter how they were known. I don't think they were perhaps born with these names. Then he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus. That's on the top east side of Turkey, up against the Black Sea on the shore. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy, specifically Rome, with his wife Priscilla. Why? Because the emperor, Roman emperor Claudius, ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Why did he do that? When did he do that? A.D. 50. It's recorded by a historian and biographer by the name of Suetonius. Suetonius wrote specifically, Claudius ordered all Jews out of Rome, expelled them. Why? Because of rioting. There were too many riots happening over and led by a man named Crestus. What's really funny about that is Crestus is their version of writing Christ. The Jews and the Christians were fighting so often that the Romans said, we're done with you. We're sick of you. Get out. He assumed that this Christ guy was a real man living at the time. He didn't know he died 20 years earlier and that they were rioting over what he stood for. He assumed that Christ was leading riots. So he just writes it down. That is an extra biblical reference to the person of Jesus Christ. Just in case you ever wondered, I wonder if anyone ever talks about Jesus outside the Bible. Of course they do. He caused so much turmoil in the city. They kicked all the Jews out. Here we go back. Paul went to see them, probably hearing that believers were in town, although we don't know they were believers at the time. And because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Now, tent maker is a very open phrase. It can mean one of two things. It can mean literally you make tents or it can mean leather worker. So we don't know exactly what everyone did, but Paul grew up in what hometown? Anybody remember? He was Saul of Tarsus. All right. In his region, they were world famous for making goat hair tents. That's why we automatically translate this tent maker, not leather worker, because he grew up super famous for making tents. Now, why did he do that if he was a rabbi, schooled guy, religious guy? Because all Jewish boys were trained in a trade. No matter what you were going to do, everyone learns a trade to be able to support yourself. Jewish rabbis had some gifts that were given to them, but they weren't allowed to force payment. So they had to have some way to make a living. Paul was good at what he did. Why did Paul continue to have a job while he was doing ministry up to this point? He says very specifically in his letters, he said, number one, so I wouldn't be a burden. Number two, so you can never tell me I'm in it for the money. Paul had to go out of his way to say, listen, it's not about that. So for a long time, he did both. I remember the first eight months of being at this church. I did the exact same thing. I worked in the insurance industry and I had two full-time jobs. I worked full-time for them. I worked full-time for the church. It's hard. We move on in verse 4. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. 
couple things intriguing about that. Uh, number one, it mentions that Jews and Greeks are in the synagogue, which means that there's Jews that are born that way, and then there's converts. Paul went in, and he began to reason with them and debate with them about the Messiah. They let him in because, quite frankly, Paul had some pretty awesome credentials. He was trained under some of the best. He was excellent at what he knew. He knew Old Testament scriptures backwards and forwards. But why is he spending time in a Jewish synagogue if he said, my ministry is to who? The Gentiles, the non-Jews. Remember, the apostles ministered to the Jews. Paul was called by God to go minister to the Gentiles. Why, every time he walks into a city, does he go to the synagogue first? He even tells you that too. Anybody know why? Because Jesus Christ, the Messiah, came first to the Jew, then to the Gentiles. Paul followed his pattern by saying the Jews are God's chosen people and God saw fit through them to bring light into the world they deserve first shot first crack at it every time bring it to them if they reject it will go worldwide and you'll see that happen right here every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue assuming along with Priscilla and Aquila, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. Now, when his buddies Silas and Timothy came from Thessalonica in the region of Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was a Christ. Right there, they brought financial aid. When his financial aid came in, he went full-time ministry. Yeah? When it dries up, he goes back to tent making. Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was a Christ. But when the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive, which you can assume happened to Priscilla and Aquila too, and Timothy and Silas and his whole team, when they became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am clear of my responsibility. In other words, I have told you the truth. You mess with me. I'm done with you. I've told you everything I know. It's on your head. From now on, he said, I will go to the Gentiles. And Paul left the synagogue and went next door. All right. That was pretty dramatic. I'm out of here. And he walks next door. You're like, dude, you walk like five feet. That was not that dramatic. What are you doing? He went next door to the house of Titius Justice. Now, that makes me smile every time I say it. What's more awkward is his name is actually Gaius Titius Justice. Now... His parents were very angry, very angry people. They decided to name him something very bizarre. Titius Justice, a worshiper of God. Then, verse 8, Crispus, whose parents were also angry. Crispus, the synagogue ruler, and his entire household believed in the Lord. Wait, what just happened? You saved the main rabbi? Of the biggest church in town, the biggest synagogue in town, what that's not going to cause a ripple effect? Do you understand what just happened? In any Jewish center, there's a big dog, and everybody else spreads out from there. There is a massive Jewish contingent in this city. Their number one guy just said, I think Jesus is the Messiah. That turned the whole Jewish world upside down. Now everyone hates Paul. And everyone hates Priscilla and everyone hates Aquila and everybody associated with them. The heat gets turned up because it starts to spread like wildfire. Look at the next phrase. It says, 
and many of the Corinthians who heard him believed and were baptized. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent for I am with you and no one's going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. A couple things you can determine from that. Number one, how bad does the situation have to be to rattle Paul? Right? Is this not the guy, the toughest man in the world? How do we know that? Because not only was he shipwrecked all these times and beaten and all that stuff, but does everybody remember the story when he got stoned to death? Okay, everybody knows what stoning to death is. Yeah, you throw a rock, hit him, knock him down, keep throwing rocks till he die. That happened to Paul. As a matter of fact, it happened to him because of the ministry. He was knocked down, crushed under the weight of rocks, and then his buddies, thinking him dead, picked him up and took him outside the city. What happened? He gets back up. And where does he go? Back into the city. Okay, here's the deal. If you throw one rock at me, I'm done. I will not wait for you to stone me to death. If even when someone throws a pebble at me, I'm out of here. Okay? I'm a pansy. He's awesome. Now, Paul the Apostle literally was stoned to death in ministry, gets back up and goes, come on, is that all you know? Okay, this is a tough man. How bad does this situation have to be that God has to come to him personally in a vision and say, don't be afraid. Keep speaking, because Paul had clammed up. He got a vision. Guess what his team didn't get? A vision. Weren't they getting all the same heat? Weren't they scared out of their mind? They didn't get it. It's very hard to lead from the second chair. Imagine being on Paul's team. Sounds cool, except for he's the only one that happens to get the visions. He has to come back to you the next day and go, you guys had a dream. You're like, well, I didn't. I'm out of here. He said, no, we got to stay. What do you mean we have to stay? I received nothing. Well, God told me, and I got to tell you, we're not going anywhere. We have to hang here. Paul, we're going to die. I don't know if you get this. Other times when you had persecution, you moved. We move on. There's more people to minister to. No, God said stay. Look at the next phrase. So Paul stayed for a year and a half. At first, that was all obedience alone. He was scared out of his mind. But God said, don't move. And he didn't move. Teaching them the word of God. Everything that hits Paul hits Priscilla and Aquila too. Let's pick it up in verse 18. Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sailed for Syria. He was going back to his home church, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Quick side note, who's named first? In almost every listing, there's only one that doesn't. They're named numerous times in scripture. Every time she's named first, except for once. Why? You have two options. Number one, royal birth. The way that they would list people out, and rarely would they ever name the women, but they would list people out, they would put them in order, and they would put the first person who had the highest rank in society. So in other words, if she was super wealthy, came from a wealthy family, was noble, royalty, she would be listed first. That is one possibility. Second possibility Because by the way, Luke wrote this. He knows what he's doing. He reversed the order on purpose. 
Second possibility, she was the most dynamic in ministry. She did more for the ministry than her husband. She was more of a partner to Paul. She was more in leadership than her husband. That is the more likely reason. That is odd. Very strange. Luke is trying to make a statement. Let's keep going. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Centria. That's that location I mentioned. Because of a vow he had taken. We don't know why. They arrived at Ephesus maybe eight to ten days later, where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. The two toughest ministries that Paul ever had, he would put his best people in place. They were Ephesus and Corinth. Guess where Priscilla and Aquila spend all their time? Ephesus and Corinth. Guess where Timothy and Titus, his two big dogs, are sent? Ephesus and Corinth. He sends his best Who's dropped off there? Priscilla and Aquila. Why? Because they can handle it. Because they're tough. Because they know what they're doing. Because they're leader material. The other thing, well, let's keep moving on. He himself, Paul, went into the synagogue, reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined. But as he left, he promised, I'll come back if it's God's will. And he set sail for Ephesus. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria in the Egyptian region came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of scriptures. Okay, we must highlight something. He's brilliant. How do we know? Alexandria had the largest library in the world. It was a mecca of learning. It had 700,000 books in its library. In an ancient world, that's enormous. The biggest in the whole world. The third largest library was where? Ephesus. He goes from one university empire to another university empire, and he says right here, he's brilliant. So this guy comes in with more degrees, with more knowledge, with more insight than anyone in the whole area. But it's not just that gifting. Check out what he also can do. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, meaning he knew the cross, he knew Calvary. And he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately. In other words, he was an incredible speaker. He could mesmerize a whole room. Every time he would talk, it was like he had a golden tongue. He would come in brilliant. Everything he would say would be dead on accurate every time. This man is one of the greatest preachers in all the Bible by the way he is described. That's super important because of what happens next. It says, he taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John, meaning he knew repentance, he knew the cross, but he didn't know Pentecost or Holy Spirit. That's different. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. So he's courageous. But what happens? When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home. Everything you'll hear next is plural. Their home, they did this, they did, it's always as a team. Why did they take him home with them? To not embarrass him publicly. Look what happens next. They invited him to their home and they explained to him the way of God more adequately. What'd they do? They discipled him. How amazing do they have to be to take the greatest preacher on the dirt around them and go, buddy, come here a second. 
Okay, real quick. My wife and I, we were listening. And she's going to go, Apollos, totally appreciate what you're doing, man. However, you got a couple things that you're missing. They just instructed the most brilliant together. Why is that so odd? Because what city are they in? Anybody remember? Ephesus. Who was Paul's big dog he sent to Ephesus to manage the church there? Timothy. Paul wrote two letters to Timothy. Remember that? It's called First and Second Timothy. In First Timothy, there is a famous passage that causes chaos in the church. Paul said, I do not allow a woman to teach a man. Do you remember that? How ironic. Because what did a woman just do? She taught a man. In the exact same city that Paul later will write those words. What in the world is going on? See, the whole idea of women in leadership has been tumultuous. Throughout, if anyone's paying attention, it's a big deal. It's always a big deal because it's not clear. And anybody that rolls up and says they know exactly how everything works is a fool. They don't know. Because all the greatest scholars and all the greatest minds in the Christian church can't figure it out. They can't agree on it. While we are sorting it out, ladies, listen to me. This woman was most likely the dominant personality in her husband and wife couple. That's why she is consistently mentioned first. Sometimes that's the case in your marriages, yeah? As a matter of fact, let me tell you this from a leadership perspective. More often than not, I would tell you probably 85% of the time, the woman in the marriage can run circles around the guy. Gentlemen, we're way behind. And there's a couple reasons for that. Number one, women are better with communication. Number two, women are better relationally. Number three, women read more. Guys don't. What that ends up doing is that in this environment, the church that is communication-based, relationship-based, and reading of the Bible, women excel and men fall behind. Almost always, if I'm going to go head-to-head with a couple, I know that the woman will probably know more than the guy. Gentlemen, that is very embarrassing. Because the irony of all of it is that you're the head of your home. Oops. Now what? Now the ladies who know more are being led by the one who knows less. In the church, who statistically goes to church more, men or women? Women. Interesting. So now they even know all the politics going on at the church as well. How in the world are men supposed to lead in the church at all? What I need you to understand is that, ladies, I know that you look at your dynamic in your relationship and you go, I don't know what's going on. He needs to step up, blah, 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 right? I know all that. And you're probably right. I need you to know that in this couple... God utilized exactly who they were, exactly in their personality to change the world. And God will utilize you as well. You are not just walking into a man's world. 
This is a Christian world. And in that, God uses women just as much as he uses men. Let's go back to the story. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. On arriving, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed, for he vigorously refuted the Jews in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. In our final minutes, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 16, 19. It's page 816. 1 Corinthians 16, 19. They're mentioned in two other passages. Only one verse here, but it says volumes. 1 Corinthians 16, 19. This is the only other time they're ever mentioned in the other reverse order. The churches in the province of Asia, Paul said, send you greetings. Aquila, that's the guy, and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord. And so does the church that meets what? At their house. Wait a second. They host a church? Of course they did. There were no buildings at that time. They were always housed in a home. But what's intriguing is that we're now in... He's writing out and saying, hey, real quick, I'm hanging out here and they have a church in their home. It is most likely and scholars would agree that it's likely that they planted the church. They didn't just house it. They weren't just leadership there. They planted it. Okay. Interesting. Let's turn to Romans 16.3. Romans 16.3, page 806. Romans 16.3, Paul writes again, he reverses the order again. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers, plural. It's not just the man, it's a woman as well. My fellow workers in Christ Jesus, they, plural, risked their lives, plural, for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets what? Oh, at their house. Here's the challenge I'm going to issue to you. What if you, as a couple, planted a church? What if you, as a couple, launched a ministry together? What if you, as a couple, went on a mission trip together? Would you do that? What are we going to do with the kids and how's it going to work out? I didn't say it was easy, but it's doable. What if you went on a spiritual adventure together? Because a lot of times we're doing awesome things, but we're doing them separately. What if we did it together? What type of memories would that create? What type of environment would that design for our children? Let's say you have grown kids. You're retired. You both go on a mission trip together. Your kids are still watching you and they're still learning. Would that change their lives? Perhaps. Mom and dad doing something in concert together. Something that's risky. Mission trips aren't easy. They're hard. Have I ever been on a mission trip with my wife? No. Will I ever? Yes. It's important. Begin to dream. What does God want you to do together? It can be as simple as handing out Bibles together, being part of the prayer team together, 
being on the greeting team together, being involved in ministry together. But ladies, the value you bring to me is just as important as anything your husband could ever bring to the table. Let's close with prayer. And we have a closing video that will bring some of this alive. And then we'll go home and see what God has for us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you, Lord, that you would dare to quicken us knowing that we are foolish and we take things wrong all the time. Yet you are not afraid of that. You issue out challenge. You stir our spirit and agitate our soul and say, what could be? Lord, for so many of us, our marriages are our number one hurt. Heal us. Change us. And breathe new life into us. Lord, some of us have gone through this whole message single. And we think, how does this apply? Lord, if you ever call us to marriage, we've got to know this stuff. If we have passed on the time that we want to be married, Lord, all those principles that you tell us in marriage, so many of them still matter. Take all of us, Lord, into deeper water. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.